I want to share with you uh, this morning uh, out of the gospel of Mark, uh, but before doing so, uh, I need to address one of the most common questions that I get about the New Testament, which is simply this, why? Why do we need four gospels at the start of the New Testament that all tell us the same exact story? The first answer to that question is the most important. It's because each author is addressing a different audience and in doing so brings light to a different facet of who Christ is. For example, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience proclaiming Christ's genealogy and declaring that Jesus is in fact the Jewish Messiah. But Mark is, is different. Mark writes to a Gentile audience, and in doing so, he proclaims Christ's authority and declares that Jesus is supreme above all others. But Luke is different in his own right. He, he, he writes to a, a mostly an intellectual audience, and he proclaims Christ's humanity and declares that God has taken on human flesh. And John, John writes to a global audience and he proclaims Christ's divinity. And in doing so, he declares, if you have seen the son, you have seen the father. And why do we need four gospels? I think that there is another reason. And I think that that reason is because your life at a bare minimum has at least four distinguished seasons. And each season helps reveal something special about God that you may have never seen before. See, at your beginning, you were born into a family. And that is where you learn about your genealogy. And then you were developed into a person who receives an identity and that's where you learn about your authority. And then you find yourself at a definite time confronted by your limitations and that's where you learn about your humanity. And through death, you are introduced into eternity and that is where we partner with his divinity. See, <coughs> Matthew is a disciple, but Mark is a ministry associate of Peter. And Luke functions as an investigative researcher, and John is an eyewitness of the empty tomb. And together, together, these four authors write the same basic story, but from four unique and different vantage points each giving insight into the multifaceted brilliance of the God-man, Christ Jesus. And, and maybe you're here today and, and, and you're like Matthew. You're just a former tax collector, but Jesus has called you by name. Or, or maybe you're like Luke. You started off as a skeptic, but now you're intrigued and you're here to investigate further. Or maybe you're like John, 
and you used to be an angry son of thunder, but you are just now beginning to receive God's love. I don't know where you're at today, but one of the reasons why I so love the word of God is because it has something for every season of your life. It's interesting to me, the number one tourist attraction in the nation of Germany today is a cathedral that sits on the Rhine River in the city of Cologne. In fact, more than 20,000 visitors a day make their way to see this World Heritage Site. Cologne Cathedral began its construction in 1248 AD, some 250 years before Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. The church wasn't completed until 1880, 15 years after the end of the Civil War. It serves as one of the longest construction projects in all of human history, clocking in at 632 years. It's the third tallest church in the world. It was bombed no less than 14 times during World War II, and it survived. And here's what I love. Inside that chapel is some brilliant and beautiful stained glass that depicts the four authors of the gospel, St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, and St. John. And if you were to strain your eyes and notice the details today, you would see that below each of the gospel authors on this stained glass is an image that reflects the purpose for why their individual books were written. It's a little bit dark, but under St. Matthew on the far left, it's a picture of a winged man because Jesus took on human flesh. Under St. Mark, it's a winged lion because Jesus is roaring with power and authority. Under St. Luke, it's a winged ox because the ox was the most common animal used in the sacrificial system of the Mosaic law and Christ himself has become the atoning sacrifice for all of humanity's sin. And under John is an eagle because the divine has come down from above. I want to share with you out of Mark 3 today, but in order to preach Mark 3, you've got to understand what is happening in Mark 1. And maybe you're aware of this today, or, or, or maybe you're not, but when the Bible was written, it didn't have the verses and the chapters that we have notated in our Bibles today. It was written as a continuous thought on a scroll or a parchment paper that was read as a continuous narrative until a thought was completed. So sometimes because of the chapters and the verses breakdown of the Bible that we have, we unnaturally end a thought before the authors were done fleshing out that portion of scripture. See, Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He was raised in a village called Nazareth and he lived his adult years in a city called Capernaum. Nazareth was a town of 500 
and Capernaum was a bustling metropolis of 1,500. And 85% of the ministry of Christ happened within a 12 square mile radius, proving that the depth of your impact is more important than the breadth of your reach. For if you will dig deep, God will cause you to grow wide. And as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, his natural platforms are where? They're in the synagogue because breaking news, Jesus was a Jew. You know what's so crazy, DB? Last Sunday night during Seattle service, I got a text from one of our new Jewish friends who attended service here with Masab two weeks ago. He said, Pastor, I'm not sure if you would ever be comfortable with this, but I wanted to put something on your radar. I said, shoot, whatever it is. He said, there are several synagogues in Seattle that would like you to come share. Would you be willing to do that? When's the last time a Pentecostal preacher had an invitation to preach in a Jewish synagogue in the city limits of Seattle? I would venture to say never. That's the power of a gospel that transforms. And in Mark 1, that story begins. Then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue and he taught and they was astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority, not like the scribes. Hear me, friend. Influence without authority is the noose around the neck of the American church. Influence without authority creates clouds without rain and sails without wind. It is a form of godliness, but the denial of power there within. It's a platform to preach on without a message worth preaching. It's the communication of Christianity divorced from the power and the witness of Christ himself. And on a borrowed stage, in a hostile environment to a blinded people in a no-name city. Jesus stands up to read from the Torah and then sits down as he begins to teach. And he says things like this. These scriptures, they testify of me. Today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Oh, your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness and died, but whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the Bible says the crowds, they were astonished. That word astonished in the Greek means to be so shocked by that which you hear that you are rendered speechless. No, not because of his social media graphics. No, not because of his incredible communication skills. No, not because the audience was trained to say amen at the right time. 
but instead because he taught with authority unlike the other scribes. I like what Dr. Tyson said. Preaching is about the exercise of authority, not the sharing of ideas. For power is the ability to do it, but authority is the right to do it. And if you don't use your authority, the devil will use his power. For power comes from operating in the lane of your God-given authority. See, I think that we have a crisis of authority in the church today. It sounds like this. I can't trust anyone, so I guess I'll just trust myself. Finocchio says it like this. The most dangerous aspect of progressive Christianity is the authority of self. For deconstruction at its epistemological root is just radical skepticism towards all authority and a journey towards self as the absolute authority. See, friend, either Christ has the authority to command your life or he is a Middle Eastern life coach who offers you advice. Either Christ has the authority to command your sexuality or he is a millennial blogger who gives you recommendations. Either Christ has the authority to be your God or humanism is your religion and fleshly desires are the object of your worship. And why were the people astonished? Because it had been so long since someone taught in such a way that the audience was convinced that the teacher actually believed the things that they were teaching. I wonder sometimes if we really believe the songs we are singing, if we really believe the words that we is reading, if we really believe the prayers that we is praying, because scripture says all things are possible to him who believes. And if that's true, then maybe the lack of breakthrough in my life has less to do with God playing favorites and more to do with the last place I parked my belief. And the story continues. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out. Isn't it interesting that the first place that Jesus encounters a demon isn't near the graveyards of the Gadarenes. It's in the whitewashed tombstones of the church. For there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. See, you've got to understand this about the Jewish custom. Women couldn't even enter the synagogue if they were on their period. Men couldn't even enter the synagogue if they had a skin disorder. Yet the doors were wide open for a man with an impure spirit. 
See, when the church becomes obsessed with the outside appearance of an individual, it's just a poor attempt to cover up for their lack of authority to deal with the spiritual nature of a person's dysfunction. See, we released a video last week about the church getting broken into. I was just asking for prayers, maybe a little bit of sympathy. Hey guys, we got broken into. Ain't gonna stop us from holding church. We'll rebuild, we'll rebuy, it don't matter. Outpouring of support came. I was scrolling through the comments and then I found one that really irritated me. (laughs) Some gal, I don't know who she is, commented on that post. What on earth did the pastor do to his hair? Change that color back right now. And normally I have at least a modicum of self-restraint, but in this situation I did not. So I responded, no, period. Jesus says it's not what's on the outside of a man that defiles him, but what's on the inside. Jesus says you can have all the right trappings of a successful life on the outside, but he who seeks to save his life will lose his life. But if he who loses his life for my sake, in fact, he will find it. And we live in a world today that has become obsessed with majoring on the minors because out of a need to control somebody else's exterior appearance, they operate in a spirit of religion that tries to crucify anything that they're uncomfortable with. It's interesting. Jesus ain't even teaching on the demonic. It's just that the demons immediately recognize there is someone with a greater authority who has taken a seat at a table we used to dominate. There was a spirit in the synagogue, but not for long because the Savior was about to take his seat. Now watch, when God makes a table for you in front of your enemies, it's not a table your enemies stay at for very long. For there is an unseen realm of supernatural authority and power that encompasses the life of a spirit-filled believer. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. And in the house, the domain, the influence of the believer, it's not that demons can't pop up, it's that they aren't invited to stick around. Oh, I would say that the first thing that Jesus will do in your life is serve an eviction notice on every inferior and foul spirit that is illegally occupying redeemed territory. It's interesting to me that when Jesus or the apostles deal with unclean spirits, almost always the demonic spirits respond in the plural. Leave us alone. What have we to do with you? Have you come to torture us before our time? See, this is the problem. Impure spirits only know how to attract other impure things. 
And this reveals a subtle spiritual deception that exists in the life of many today. You might think that you're just entertaining one singular bondage. You're just messing around with one finite compromise. But when that thing takes root in your life, it'll invite its friends. See, there's a reason it's called a foothold. It's a foot in the doorway of your soul that keeps an avenue of access open for other tormenting spirits to enter in. See, friend, the bondage of Samson was lust. But when that door opened, with it came anger, rebellion, betrayal, blindness, and eventually slavery. Now watch how the story continues. The Bible says this. Now, they was all amazed. So that when they questioned amongst themselves, they said, what is this? Is this some new doctrine? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So at evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick, all who were demonized. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons and he traveled throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out their demons. See, the ministry of Jesus and the message of Mark is this. Jesus has authority over sin, sickness, disease, and demons. He is not just a teacher. He is the divine, only begotten son of the most high God. And this is where we pick up in Mark 3. Starting in verse 1, the Bible says, In Jesus entered the synagogue again. I'm back. Y'all miss me? Remember the trouble we caused last time? I'm here to double it. And Jesus entered the synagogue again. But this time, this time, there was a man with a withered hand who was there. Huh. And Jesus is back in the same synagogue he was just in. In fact, there was only one synagogue in the small city of Capernaum. And in fact, I have stood in the very place where Christ would have stood when he read from the Torah in the Gospel of Mark. And in the synagogue that day, the Bible says that there was a man with a withered hand. See, th this man's injury wasn't life-threatening. The Bible never records that he was asking to be healed. I, I am sure that on that day, there were other people who were worse off than him. In my mind's eye, I, I imagine this man sitting near the back, hoping no one would notice, hoping no one would look or ask awkward questions, hoping no one would laugh or mock or poke fun. And as Jesus scans the eyes of the audience, the one who wishes he could go unnoticed finds himself locking eyes with the one who sees everything. And this is where the miracle begins. I am so shook by the way that Charles Spurgeon preached Mark 3. He said this, And today, dear friends, 
It matters very little to the preacher or to the congregation that you are here if you are some person of note or consequence. For we make no note of dignitaries here, and we attach no special consequence to anyone in this place. For this is a place where the rich and the poor meet together. And that is just the case today. If you are rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing, my master does not want you. For he is a physician, and those who practice the healing art look out for sickness as their sphere of operation. If we were to tell a wise physician of a town where nobody was sick, but everybody enjoyed perfect health, he would not settle there unless he wished to retire from his practice. But my master does not come into the assemblies where all feel themselves quite content where there are no blind eyes, no deaf ears, no broken hearts, no withered hands. For what do such folks need with a savior? No, he looks around in his eyes. They fix themselves upon pain, upon necessity, upon incapacity, and upon sinfulness. For what he wants in us mortals is the opportunity to do us good. It's interesting because of the construction of the Greek verb tense of this verse, we know that this man wasn't born with a withered hand, but instead encountered an injury that resulted in a withered hand. See, in Jewish culture, the hand was seen as a symbolic representation of one's ability to worship. See, the Hebrew word for praise is yadah. It means to worship with an extended hand. It means to thrust out your hand like a warrior shooting an arrow in an act of praise. See, the Jews saw the right hand as a representation of the heart. And when a person would raise their hands in worship, it was seen as an invitation for the heart of God to be joined to the heart of man. Amen. Hear me, friend. When injury goes unhealed in your soul, the first thing that it will do is compromise your ability to trust God with your heart. See, I am aware that on any given Sunday, this room is filled with people who through the process of life have incurred injuries in their soul. And they are showing up to church sometimes for the first time in a long time, sometimes for the last time, wondering in the back of their mind if God still has a miracle for them. And I want you to know with 100% certainty today that God sees you right where you're at. You haven't escaped his gaze and his specialty is causing the pain of your last season to be eclipsed by the restoration of your next one. And here's the reality. I can't give God what I want to with a withered hand. I can't receive like I need to with a withered hand. I can't
worship like I used to with a withered hand. And you might be here today with injuries that others have caused you or injuries that you have caused yourself or injuries that you have taken up on behalf of somebody else. But frankly, I don't care how you got injured. I'm just here to tell you there is hope for the withered places of your heart and your life. And if you will trust Jesus, you can leave this place restored. See, the Bible says this in verse two. Now watch, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now you might be thinking, what's the big deal about Jesus doing miracles on the Sabbath? And here's the big deal. The Jews, they viewed healing as work which violated the prohibition on labor for which the penalty was death under the Mosaic law according to Exodus 35. Now let me help you today. The principle of the Sabbath remains, which is this. You need regular rest from regular work because when you rest, you declare to the principality and power of busyness, my supply, my resource, and my reward doesn't come from my labor, it comes from his. But Jesus in Mark three, renegotiates and redefines how the Sabbath works. No, it's no longer about a rigid 24-hour moratorium on work getting done. It's about trusting that Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath and in him you have entered into a constant, never-ending spiritual rest. But see, the Pharisees could not understand this. They saw healing as work because they viewed relationship with God as duty. And as long as your relationship with God is a task to be done instead of a person to be enjoyed, you will equate the acts of your faith with the exhaustion of your life. Ugh, do we really have to go to church? It's Sunday again? We really gotta worship? It's payday again? They really expect me to tithe? See, we got an entire generation of people exhausted by their followership of Christ because they see normal Christianity as rules to be followed instead of a relationship to be cultivated. Imagine talking to your spouse. Do I really gotta take you out on a date again? Do I really have to spend time with you again? We really have to talk on the phone again? We really have to celebrate your birthday this year again? Yes, because you are cultivating covenantal relationship with a person. And although it takes effort, it does not require nor result in exhaustion. 
Watch verse three. So Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. So he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he stretched it out, his hand was completely restored. See, in some stories, Jesus heals the crowds because he is motivated by compassion. Yet in Mark 3, Jesus heals a man because he is motivated by his righteous anger. How dare the religious arguments get in the way of God's miraculous power? (laughs) While people were arguing about the pastor's hair color, that man with the withered hand decided to give up on God. While people were complaining about the bad parking, that lady with a withered hand went back to drugs and alcohol. While people was arguing about the timeline for Christ's return, that college kid with a withered hand took their own life. I'm here to tell you, it's time to get angry at the right stuff. Where is the God of Elijah? He's looking for some folks who are willing to break the boxes of tradition in order to reach a region filled with withered hands. And watch the two commands of Christ. Stand up and stretch out. Why? 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 Why is the command first to stand up and second to stretch out? And then, only after those two things are done, thirdly, for the miracle to occur. Certainly, Jesus has enough power to heal this man in the anonymity of the seat that he occupies. Why? Because wholeness, healing, and restoration do not happen in your life without risk, obedience, and vulnerability. You have to risk being seen as disfigured. You've got to trust that obedience is still your greatest sacrifice. You got to be vulnerable enough to try, try again, because it is the crushed parts of the human soul that are most in need of the daylight that comes from the Son of God. And if he is rising with healing in his ways, then as I rise, my healing will happen too. You know, I I used to do altar calls where I'd say, now with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. If you're here today and you're not right with God, 
Would you just look up at me and blink three or four times and today you will be with me in paradise. And today I am more convinced than ever that a public Jesus who bled and died on a public cross, who was raised from the dead in a public resurrection, declares his life to the disciples who are gathered, public ascension into heaven. That God is more than worthy of a public declaration of our lives, even in the midst of our woundedness, our withered condition, and the disfigurement of our soul. God, I'm not perfect. I've messed up more ways than I could even count. I just wish I could hide in this dark auditorium in a church that is big enough where it's a possibility that I would get overlooked. But God, today, if I would hear you calling my name, I'm not gonna harden my heart and it might not be pretty and it might not look cool and it might offend the religious crowd, but with everything that I got through the lens of my withered estate, I'm gonna stand up in front of everyone. I'm gonna stretch out to the God who still saves, who still heals, who still restores. And I'm simply gonna trust that my best days are not behind me, they are ahead of me because I've got a God who is still in the business of restoring the wounded parts of the human experience. That's the God that we serve. And the injury that you received may not have been your fault but the healing you receive is in part your responsibility. It maybe we could make today the last day we talk about what people did to us and the first day that we put faith in a God who has worked for us because that Jesus still stands in the tabernacle of the righteous and declares to the men and the women hiding in the shadows, stretch out your hand. I tried to do it before, but it didn't work. The last time I did it, all I got was more injured than I was before. I've been down this road. I've knocked on this door. I've been through this journey. I've trusted when it didn't happen. I expected when it died, didn't receive. I don't know if I could dare myself to be vulnerable again, but at your word, I'll step out of this boat and onto that water to lock eyes with you. Cause if you call me by and turns it into rest. The Pacific Northwest is a region filled with withered hands, but the Pursuit Northwest 
is a church who operates in God's authority. And I say over this region, stretch out your hand and watch what my God can do on your behalf. Come on, would you stand as we close?